Welcome to Engaging and Empowering School Libraries, a podcast that aims to raise the profile of school libraries by talking about topics that are current across education and teaching. Tonight, we're revisiting our discussion around non-fiction collections in school libraries, which we started back in July 2022. It seems like the right time to come back to this important topic, as the conversation about reading for pleasure seems to focus more on our fiction collections. Many of my recent conversations have been about the balance between fiction and non-fiction when you're building your library collections. Do we actually know our non-fiction collections as well as we know our fiction? Um, and are we considering the role of non-fiction as a recreational reading and supporting independent learning when we decide how to spend our budgets? Hopefully, we'll be diving into some of this during our discussion this evening. And I'm delighted tonight to say that we are joined by non-fiction author Andy Seed and school librarian Jenny Turian, along with my usual co-hosts uh, Ruth Maloney and Sabrina Cox. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Um, so can I start off by asking Andy, can you introduce yourself to let our listeners know who you are, please? Uh, thanks, Elizabeth. It's lovely to be with you. Yes, so I'm Andy Seed. Um, I've been an author of um, children's factual books for over 20 years now. I've written about 50 books about all kinds of things. I'll be no doubt holding a few of them up later, like Interview with the Tiger, um, History's Bigger Show Off. And yeah, I uh, really love being a, a big advocate of uh, nonfiction for children and uh, reading for pleasure as well. Fantastic. Okay, thanks very much. And Jenny, can you introduce yourself too? Hi, um, I'm Jenny Tureen and I am a school librarian at a small independent school on Guernsey at Blanchetown College. Um, it's an interesting school because it's a three school, it goes all the way through from nursery all the way, all the way up to year 13. Um, and we have two libraries. I'm mainly based in the senior library. Um, so we have about 450 students. Um, and in the senior school, we have 300 or so. Um, and as well as being a librarian um, with my husband, Daryl, who's in charge of the library, um, I'm also the EPQ and HPQ coordinator. Fantastic. Busy lady then. <laughs> So let's kick off our first question to Andy. So it's a nice, easy one, a, a usual one for, for authors when they come along. But what inspired you? What inspired you to become a non-fiction author um, rather than a fiction author? Or did that never even cross your mind, I suppose? Uh, OK, uh, yeah, happy to, to answer that. First thing I've got to say, though, and anyone who knows me or has heard me talk uh, about non-fiction will know that I don't like the word or the phrase non-fiction. It's notice very negative. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you already knew that. I've always got to get yeah. this in because I'm on a one-man mission. Um, it's been a one-man mission for a long time. It probably will be forever to change <laughs> what we call these books to factual books. Okay. Um, non-fiction is negative. It's a dull title. We're defining something by what it's not, which is absurd. <laughs> I mean, when you have visitors around, you say, oh, do you like tea or non-tea? Um, <laughs> it's just ludicrous. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and non-fiction is the poor relation of, of, of children's publishing in many ways and it yeah. isn't helped by by that label so I'm going to call myself an author of factual books and if you don't know what that means it means non-fiction okay Fantastic. so how did I become uh, what inspired me to become an author of factual books well um, that's what I read as a kid when I was very lucky in that although we didn't have many books um, growing up in my family many children's books. Um, my parents did take me and my two sisters to the local public library, which was just up the road. And it was great. It was heaven for me because I could choose. And that's a massive thing, as we all know. So I chose, I discovered all these factual books about subjects I was interested in. And I'm one of those people who likes facts and likes learning about new things and most children actually fall into that category as well uh, and so I started to just you know eat the books off the shelves I did read fiction as well but it was non-fiction that really got me um, reading and that's how I became a reader and this is why I'm a massive advocate of of factual books as a route to reading for children so I was kind of inspired by that and then um, I was quite good at writing I wasn't one of the best when I was when I was younger, but I enjoyed it. I like anything creative. And um, I was a teacher like many, like many uh, children's authors for a while. 
And one day this fabulous author came to my school, Wes McGee, a poet. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you you know him, yeah. sadly not yeah. with us any longer, but he was amazing with my class. This was this was in, in the year 1999. Mm-hmm. And um I got a great chance to chat to him, made him a cup of tea and um or non-coffee as I call it. And <laughs> he 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 told me. He told me what it was like as a job. I really sort of pummeled him with questions. And I'm always amazed that when I go to schools, I don't get lots of questions. I do occasionally from people who like writing, you know, about the job. Yeah. Um, usually they want to know how to get something published. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, so he really inspired me. And he said, you know, the only way to find out if you can do it, if you can make it as an author is to give it a go. And so why don't you just write something, Andy, and send it off and you never know. And yeah. that's what happened. So that kind of got me me launched. Um, yeah, twenty five years ago, really. And what was your what was your first book that you chose? Did your first book that you wrote did that get published? Well, the, those sorts of questions are often is never easy to answer, as yeah. as you yeah. might think. So um, it's very hard to get something. Public, unless you write a masterpiece straight off. And even then yeah. it can get rejected, as we know. So yeah. my route was long and circuitous into getting something published. But I, I managed to get professional writing jobs using my experience as a, as a teacher and do a little bit of poetry as well. So I got a few poems published and I got some educational things published. So I don't I don't really call, count them as books because they were they were kind of learning resources, but they Absolutely. they got me into publishing and I got contact. So my first sort of proper trade factual children's book was published in 2004. And I don't I never show it or talk about it because it's got the world's worst title. And now you're all going to know what it is. Aren't you, you have well, to tell I'm us not now. Telling yes. you. No, I'm not going to tell you. It's too, it's too annoying. <laughs> we, we'll oh, all have to go and we'll have to go and do our um, research and <laughs> All right, then it's it's called How to Spot a Hadrosaur in a Bus Queue. <laughs> and if you're thinking, what? What did he just say? What what did that mean? I don't know. It's stupid. It's ludicrous. Blame Hodder. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, yeah, titles are a big thing with me. And I've had so many um, disputes and disagreements over the years about titles. Absolutely, and it's because of yeah. this terrible first experience where I was kind of bullied into accepting a a bad title and um as a newbie you don't have much you know no, say don't. so in the matter really yeah. and uh yeah so. it's interesting what you're saying about um somebody telling you just to start writing and and it's a bit like my experience with blogging it's nothing like writing a book you know I'm not trying to compare but but actually you have to start somewhere and and if I look back at my first blog posts they're they're shocking but that's how you learn isn't it you learn absolutely you learn to craft and write and understand what people want to read and and that's all part of the journey isn't it so so that's how you become the the wonderful factual author that you are (laughs) well done (laughs) <laughs> I'm learning I'm learning so can you tell us Andy how you choose the topics so you 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 write for children um do you choose between writing for 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 pleasure and fun and the kind of um books that you know will rather attention or do you write curriculum related or or is there might not even be a difference I don't know what do, how do you choose the books that you write? Right. Yeah, this this is another good question and 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 quite complicated to answer. So um no, I don't really write books tied to the curriculum, but there is a lot of pressure off publishers to make sure there is, you know, a sort of visible link that will attract teachers and schools particularly, which makes sense. And obviously as an ex teacher, I'm very aware of that, but it's not the forefront of my mind that I'm going to write a science book or um, a history book. Um, For me, it's got to be something I'm interested in. So I write about what I'm interested in. uh, um, The best writing for me comes out of the author's passion and interest, what they really care about. And that hopefully is transferred through the writing to the reader and they pick up that enthusiasm. That's, That's the theory. It's never that simple to do. But 
Um, <clears throat> the other complication for me is that these days, once I think once you become established, and it took me a long while to become established as a children's author, and your sales are reasonably good, then you start to get commissions. And the nice thing about that is you don't have to go through that awful process of pitching and waiting to hear back and potential disappointment, which happens to you know every author. Um, if if somebody commissions you, uh, an editor you like from a reputable publisher, you, you're kind of ready to go. If you like that idea, if it matches you, and and basically there'd there'd be there'd be fools not to go to you know great trouble to make sure they've got the right author for their idea. So a lot of the books I do now are commissioned, right. but they know what I like to write as well. So it's a it's a matching process. It's kind of like you know dating almost. But, yeah. you know, they, you, the two sides come together and it usually works. I'm not saying it always works. So these days I can kind of pick and choose. So people ask me to write some things occasionally. I'm just not interested. Uh, I said no to a project recently. But usually, yeah, I'm, I, I like other people's ideas because quite often there's something you wouldn't think of um, yeah. or, or a new it's a new approach to something you're interested in that maybe forces you to come at a topic from uh, an original angle, which is what publishing is all about. You know, there's a book about everything already. You just need a new a new angle on, on that topic to make your book stand out. And so if somebody's got that bit of originality in the concept, you know, I'm happy to sort of think, hmm, yeah, I'd like to give that a go. And you know you've got the backing of the publishers so that you're off to a head start there whereas if it's your own concept maybe somebody at the publishers quite often the salespeople, yeah. they might not you know believe it to the same extent and it's got to go through all that rigmarole of will it translate this is a massive issue and a lot of people i found teachers readers of course children are unaware of it the whole idea that a book should really sell uh, as co-editions abroad. So it needs to be translatable and certain things don't translate very well. Humour, unfortunately for me, um, <laughs> and rhymes and things like that. Sometimes they do, but it's, it's, it complicates the picture. So I've thrown a few things in there to hopefully give you an idea of that it's not a simple question to answer. <laughs> But it so, all, the, the bottom line is I've got to be interested in in it. So if you had to, uh, see, am I going to try and push you to answer a question that you can't answer then? You can't, it, your topics, have you got a favourite topic though? If you could choose to write yeah. whatever you wanted. Yeah, absolutely. So the, 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 two, the two areas I write about far more than any other are, are wildlife and history. So I showed those yeah. two books. So yeah. Interview the Tiger which is a very interesting um, book we'll come back to later for other reasons. Um, history's biggest show-offs. Here's another one, um, history. So history's biggest show-offs, obviously, is history. Uh, this is The Plot Against the Emperor, no, a recent Nosy Crow title for the British Museum. And, you know, this is Romans and particularly like ancient history, but um, any kind of history, I've always loved history. And wildlife, the environment, the two, the two areas. And after a while, you 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 tend to, you know, the commissions tend to fall into the areas that you're familiar you with. Want, yeah. Um, yeah. Some authors hate that. And you they always want to do something different. Is but everybody likes to put you in a box. Unfortunately, in publishing as in life, and it, it yeah. is a problem sometimes. Yeah. No. So let me ask you then: Do you think there are any? misconceptions about factual books um ah, i've got a list oh go on then <laughs> <laughs> oh that's surprising one I prepared, sounds like blue peter one i prepared earlier <laughs> i've got a list but that's not it um <laughs> yeah i found it good <laughs> too many pieces of paper on my, on my desk because guess what i'm behind with the deadline <laughs> oh i shouldn't have said that should i so honestly, editor, if you're watching, I'm 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 almost I'm only an hour behind. <laughs> um. So, <laughs> yeah. So my first, yeah, I I could have. This is a great question, Elizabeth. Well done. Uh, common misconceptions. First of all, 
um, factual books are not always separate from fiction. There is a continuum of books and you get hybrid books. And these are books I've, I've started writing more and more. And this is why Interview with the Tiger is interesting because it is actually a hybrid book. It's a factual book. There are loads of facts about tigers and nine other animals with claws. Um, but there are there are fictional elements in here. Every animal I interview, of course, the fact that I'm talking to animals <laughs> is uh, isn't entirely factual. Although when I speak to six year olds, it is. <laughs> and uh, the 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 fact that um, uh, that every animal I've given every animal a, a personality. Um, adds to the appeal and the readability. Um, but that's not factual, is it? Um, the fact that my wolf is very grumpy or my anteater is a bit of a hippie. Um, <laughs> these are things I've made up. Um, maybe they are. Yeah. Maybe all <laughs> anteaters are like that. But the facts about anteaters are true. So that that's a, a crossover book. And yeah. so is the one I showed you a moment ago. So this is a very interesting book because Hot Against the Emperor is a combination of picture book with wonderful illustrations by James Weston Lewis of um, ancient Rome. It's yep. a puzzle book. It's got puzzles in. It's a factual book. And it's got a story as well. So there we are. That that just shows you, you can't just call it a non-fiction book, really, because it isn't. And so... That's a misconception. The, the two things, never the twain shall meet. The, there are books in between. I more and more are 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 in that grey area in between. Absolutely. I think Ruth Can wants I... to come in on that. She does. Can I ask Ruth to talk? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, that, I think that's a. I mean, it's certainly true. It seems to me truer of young adult factual books. Uh, sorry, of children's factual books than it is of adult factual books. I can think of far. I can think of biographies. People tend to turn their biographies into semi-fictional, semi-autobiographical. But that really complex intertwining, the only other place I can think of that happening in, in older books or at least older children's books is graphic novels. Do you think that's what about the historical, case? Historical fiction. Mm. Is that the mm, Historical fiction is definitely over the fictional side of factual <laughs> memoirs I, I think a typical adult memoir is uh you know uh, there's there's a definitely an element of fiction in a lot yeah. of them i know that for a fact because i did write some memoirs myself and i know some other memoir writers <laughs> so yeah but, interesting I mean, question but pulling away from those sorts of subjects i mean you know, if you're thinking about sciences, it, I mean, the sort of teenage version of your wildlife books would be, you know, straightforward biology or ecology or something like that. Um, I don't see that blending as much at that level. Jenny, what about go Jenny? on. Yes. I think um, what you were talking about, so the, the memoirs and the, the autobiographies and the, the element of fiction in those, I think that brings us on to a point where I struggle a little bit with, I understand the issue with non-fiction as a term, but as a secondary librarian, I'd be very uncomfortable calling my non-fiction books factual books, because for us, I would say they are more fact and opinion books, because we we talk a lot about the nuance of um, just because it's in a non-fiction book, it doesn't mean it's true. And it doesn't even necessarily mean it's a fact because we have to be very careful to look at our nonfiction books and look at the bias and look at the opinion of the authors. Not where we're talking about something like an interview with a tiger, where it's, it's obvious where the line is. But when you're getting one book that's saying climate change is a real thing and another book that's saying climate change is nonsense and they're both in the nonfiction section, calling them both factual books in quite the same way is very difficult. And I think... If we were, if I was going to use that description in a in a secondary library, I'd talk about the fact and opinion section rather than the fact section. Yeah, interesting. Would you? I can see the argument against it being non-fiction because because students struggle, don't they? They do struggle with 
it's it's you're saying it's not fiction you know <laughs> rather than it is something um so i can see but i like that fact and opinion it, it, it sort of is a broader concept and probably that's more for the older rather than the younger students so yeah no so uh, have we got any other misconceptions about non-fiction books Andy you said you had a list yeah yeah well, that was only number one eh? <laughs> <laughs> it started us off well <laughs> well um I, I do hear a lot of librarians sorry for still calling them information books which I struggle with because even though many children's factual books are full of information that suggests that they're not there to be read for pleasure so um, I think it's so important that children see these books as books they can just read for enjoyment they don't have to use them as reference books or to get a piece of information from they can just be there for enjoyment as I as I read those books in in the in my local library you know 50 years ago so uh, that's that's another one uh, third one I've written uh <laughs> bit of a tongue in bit of a tongue in cheek uh one that one is that it's a common misconception that non-fiction authors don't like awards because <laughs> there don't seem to be any for non-fiction so there, there they must doesn't. think you don't like them yeah um, there's very few isn't there um because there is the sla award isn't there non-fiction not uh no that's not... called the Information Book Award. It is the Information Book Award. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I, I sort of challenged them on this. Um, an interesting thing came out of my discussions with the SLA on this. In that they they said one of the biggest problems they face is a lot of publishers don't put books forward for that mm. award, so mm. it doesn't cover the full breadth of of factual books for children at all. I mean, mm. it's a great award. I support it, and you know, I, I've I've hosted the the. the the awards before but it 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 needs support wider support and one way to do that i think would be to increase the number of awards or or there are loads of awards for children's writing but they're nearly all fiction and some of them are exclusively fiction some of them say oh no we're open to non-fiction but of course um adults as gatekeepers tend to go for fiction well this bleed leads me on to a a, a conversation that i've been having recently with Daryl and and the essence of the fact so so if we go back if we go to the the Carnegie Award that is an award where where librarians um uh, put books forward for for that award and they get they get hundreds of nominations um but is that because school librarians are mainly reading fiction and and if you then have a, a non-fiction book award, do our school librarians have enough knowledge about the breadth of non-fiction that is available to be able to actually suggest make suggestions of good non-fiction? Ruth. Um so there are several things obviously going on, I think. There are um in my mind, it's necessary to separate fictional books from whatever we're going to call the others in whatever form they are, if you are judging them for an award purpose. Because I think I find judging book awards extremely difficult. You know, when we do them at school, the kids say, well, what are we judging? What, what criteria are we using? It would be extremely difficult to find a set of criteria which worked for both fictional and other books. Um, and I do see nominations on the shortlist and on the long or at least on the nominations list for the Carnegie Award, which are factual or opinion based writing. I am slightly uncomfortable with them in the same list, and I think there needs to be a separation. Um, I, yeah, because I, I would find it very difficult to say, okay, well, this great piece of comedy writing by William Sutcliffe is better than this very serious piece about climate change by somebody or other. You know, I, I, do you see? Yeah. What I, I totally mean? agree with that. Yeah, totally I think agree. you know, I'm I'm all for it, and I think some of the most interesting books that we buy come out of those 
shortlist more. I mean, there are more of those awards for adult writing, certainly. I'm only aware of the SLA award, I think, for nonfiction. I'm not even sure I know of anything overseas. Um, you know, any of the American Library Association or any of those places. Um, but but they're brilliant books and, you know, they're, they're well worth pursuing as a librarian, but I wouldn't want them... I wouldn't want them modelled in with the Carnegie, personally. Because I think that the, you find you get more information, factual books in the um, uh, illustrators section rather than in the in the yeah. But then, but then it's very easy to judge those against each other because you're not worrying about the text. Yeah. You're so it's not you're not being judged on their images. Their, information that's just yeah I mean, so it's a different competition anyway. so the words could be i mean they could be wordless yeah and and then you wouldn't know i mean it wouldn't matter in that way whether it was fiction or not yeah yeah um, okay so let's move on slightly then and bring jenny in because she's been very quiet and we can't have that <laughs> <laughs> so what role do you think factual information I'm going to call the books play in recreational reading and in an informal inquiry. So we were alluding to a little bit about what Andy was saying is that that um, those kind of books, <laughs> I'm going to have to call them nonfiction because that's what I use them as. Nonfiction books are um, uh, generally in schools used for finding information. Um, so how do we encourage you know, how do we make sure that they, they're not sat for just that? I don't know whether that was a good question or not, Jenny. <laughs> I think it's been interesting, actually, having having moved schools in the last um, three years or so. Um, where I am now at Blancheland, there actually is a really rich mixed culture of reading fiction and non-fiction for recreation. Um, and it's, it's partly coming up from the primary school. And I've First year we were there, we were getting children coming into year seven saying, well, I've got my reading book and I've got my just for fun book. And the just for fun book was the nonfiction book, which was really interesting. Um, and I think something we have to really nurture as librarians is that different children are different. And some children love to read nonfiction and some children love to read fiction. And actually quite a lot of children love to dip between the two. And... If we're not careful, we can teach them that fi only fiction is suitable for recreational reading and only nonfiction is suitable for learning about the world. And actually, they're both suitable for both. Um, and when we started up some reading challenges in year seven, um, where I've been before, I've, I've seen different things done. I've seen... Um, reading challenges quite quite often have things like you need to read in seven different genres, one of which can be nonfiction, which is yeah. basically saying that a sixth of your only only a seventh of your reading can be nonfiction, and actually that's the kind of also round that we'll put in there just in case you want it. Whereas mm -hmm. we wanted to really celebrate the fact that for some children that's all they want to read, and that's actually not just okay, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so one, we have a range of optional challenges, and one of the challenges we have um, is the, the non-fiction night. And the challenge is to read from a range of different Dewey 100 sections, so that you're doing like a tour around the non-fiction section to get some of the breadth of different topics there are, in the same way as we might encourage them in fiction to read around the different genres. Um, and that's actually been been quite popular. And a lot of the children who've done that have said that they've discovered books they wouldn't otherwise have read. Yeah. And so do you, do you do that alongside the fiction challenges or do you mix them up? How do you do? The you... children have a choice. Okay. So we have, um, I think it's six different challenges. And at the beginning of the year, we have a conversation with every child, this is year seven, year eight, conversation with every child about what challenge they want to start with. Um, and where, so for some of them who aren't necessarily reading all that much, they'll start with a habit builder challenge, which is about how much time you're spending reading at home. Some of them will want to do a genre explorer in fiction. Some will want to do the nonfiction night. 
some of them might want to do something else about something like cultural diversity and something like that. That's not just about reading fiction either. You can read books about lots of different cultures in fiction and you can read about lots of different cultures in nonfiction too, and they can choose. And it isn't a, you must read this many fiction books and you must read this many nonfiction books. It's about helping them to explore what they're interested in and to learn about the world in a way that really suits them, but also pushes and challenges them. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting talking back to the children about why they choose the challenges they choose and how that's pushed them and what they've learned from, from those different challenges. Ruth, did you have your hand up before or was that just a thumb up? No, it was a thumbs up. And it was actually, <laughs> the, it, we. I was thinking about the way we do our reading, well, we, I don't know what we call them, reading challenges. They're not a, so they're, they're the way we run the reading lessons, particularly with year seven, and they're given a genre, but within that genre, they're allowed to read and they're encouraged to read from all sorts of parts of the library. So they're encouraged to read poetry about that subject. So it's more a, a sort of theme rather than a genre. And it's hard work in year seven to get those conversations to pull back together, because if somebody's read you know, why I'm talking, why I'm not talking to white people about race. Somebody's read some poetry about racism. Somebody's read, you know, I don't know, some or something or other else. To make those conversations work again and to make them think about how those books talk to each other is quite difficult, but far more interesting than them all reading from the same kind of collection. And it gives them a more considered um, approach to their reading, I think. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. And you know, some some of our students, like I've got one at the moment who's doing a, a cultural diversity challenge, um, and she's reading on topics that really interest her, but she started off on Morris Gleitzman's Once series and worked her way out into the Diary of Anne Frank, and now she's coming back into the fiction section. And I think for the children... It's quite an artificial distinction, actually, between the two sections. It's useful in terms of shelving the books, but in terms of different types of books, some of the books in the different sections are really quite similar to each other. And it's only semi-useful in shelving the books. I have regularly have a conversation about why folklore lives in the non-fiction section and poetry, why does that live in the non-fiction section? You know, and I've had a long... And uh, in-depth discussion with one of my year 12 students about how the whole library should be organised by subject so that all my history books about World War II should sit with all my fiction books about World War II. And that would be a much more satisfying way to organise the room. Uh, yeah, I, it became, it's a proper librarian's rabbit hole, this. <laughs> maybe, for another, maybe for another podcast. It's also <laughs> a sense of how your library is organised and set up also um, adds to children's views about the fiction and the non-fiction. So I came from another library that both libraries were set up before I arrived, so none of this is my doing, but a library that I came from. Um, downstairs was almost all fiction, but we had the key stage three non-fiction, up to key stage three non-fiction downstairs, but that was quite a small section and was mostly what I would call information books. They were mostly books for learning curriculum content rather than books that were necessarily enjoyable to read. Um, I mean, they could be enjoyable to read, but they weren't written to be read. They were written to be homework help, essentially. Um, upstairs was all nonfiction um, and some really, really interesting stuff up there. Um, but there was there was a real division between the two and the, the nonfiction downstairs was very much kind of the poor relation in the corner. Whereas, and we didn't get much reading from the nonfiction section. Um, certainly lower down. Whereas where I am now, the room is in two halves, one half is fiction, one half is non-fiction. And there's no distinction between the two in terms of one looking more attractive than the other. And we get a lot of movement between the fiction and the non-fiction. And I'm, I don't think that's accidental. Mm. It makes a big difference how it looks. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. So... Into Andy, let me bring you back in because because if we are talking about um, 
select we're going to talk about select strategies for selecting nonfiction or sorry factual books is is that do you have a focus on on thinking because because with your teacher background you know the kind of books that that librarians are looking for to fill up their collections and one of the one of the problems I think at the minute is that there's probably not enough non-fiction being written in order for librarians to fill up their collections especially lower secondary um does that does that make is that a focus when you're writing do you think um i totally agree that there's not enough um current factual writing for secondary lower secondary there's a big gap there and publishers mysteriously seem to have got it in their heads that that um, children at that age lose interest in 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 many subjects, which just isn't true. By the way, just one more thing that I, I really wanted to say earlier, which kind of underpins a lot of what I've said. Uh, I wanted to quickly, I'd, I've, I've been so busy, I haven't had much time to check this out really carefully, but the idea that the misconception that, that um, a lot of people don't read um, nonfiction for pleasure. So... In the world of adult books, by far more adults choose nonfiction over fiction. So mm-hmm. I just I managed to find it's hard to get hard data for, to, but but in in um, twenty twenty two in in the US, uh, four hundred and seventy eight million print books were sold to adults. Two hundred eighty nine million were nonfiction. One hundred eighty nine million were fiction. And for the UK, very strange data I picked up from Nielsen. The first seven months of 2021, adult fiction sales, 37 million. Adult nonfiction sales, 45 million. Wow. That is astonishing, isn't it? And yeah. and and so we 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 kind of we need to feed that because it starts young. And and I I I think there are lots of great. Uh, children's non-fiction writers out there producing not lots of great titles they just they just don't get seen enough and, mm-hmm. and that's part of part of the issue is that uh, the world of children's books is so tightly geared to to fiction which isn't a bad thing because there's amazing as we all know there's so much amazing fiction Absolutely. But we've got to make room for factual books and um a great way to do it is to connect with with authors, to connect with publishers. I think librarians need to be pushy. A great way to to connect with um, publishers is through an author. So if you can get to know your local, particularly, I, I think local connections are, are so important. Your 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 most local children's nonfiction writers, and if you if you don't know where to start with that, just put a message out there on social media. Do a do a do a question. You know, what what uh, what children's nonfiction writers are there in Essex or 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 on Guernsey or or wherever, and um, you'll get answers. There's a great group on Facebook called um, Reading for Pleasure in Schools. Thirty five thousand members in that group, and if you put a question on there, you'll get answers. And a lot of authors connect with that as well. So once you've got your connection with your local author, you can then ask them about connecting with the publisher. Who's the person that I want to go to to find out about books and how I can get promotional material and 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 maybe get an author visit and 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 you know how can I find out about your new publications? And they'll they may put you on a, a mailing list or send you a catalogue or or whatever. And you, there there are just so many great books out there, but it's so hard to find the full range of them for yeah. readers. For even librarians, I think, you know, yeah. I was I was sort of scratching my head, thinking, well, where would I start to look if I was in your position? And there's lots of routes I know because I work in this area. But for somebody who's not in the area, it, it's actually really difficult. And yeah. I think there, you may you may be surprised, Elizabeth. You said there may be gaps. I think publishers are, are actually good at spotting the gaps and filling them. We just you just maybe haven't seen the books. There are loads of great books out there but they just don't get any uh publicity yeah, yeah they'll be is... shouting for them sometimes even the authors a lot of factual children's authors are strangely shy people 
Um, <laughs> and that's often because they don't get asked to do events. And so they don't practice. They don't get they don't do many school visits. Um, I do, and which is why I, 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 I'm out there shouting about it a lot and getting getting my books noticed. Yeah. Um, I just think it's it's something that needs to be done more widely. Absolutely. Can I bring Jenny back in? Uh, actually, that the what Andy was saying there brought up two different things for me, and one of them is in terms of connecting with publishers. Um, Darren and I have a meeting tomorrow with um, somebody who's in charge of it at Blue Warmer, which is a local um, non well a local publisher, um, in particular because we're wanting to connect with local authors who are writing about things that we can bring into our school to use um, in some of our signature work inquiries. And I think you're absolutely right that, that meeting with publishers and talking to publishers and connecting with authors is really important because we don't necessarily know what's out there. Um, and to be able to go to the publisher and say, this is what we need, you know anyone who's interested in writing that kind of thing. Um, particularly for something like that, a small local publisher, who might be much more interested in our voice than uh, a, a much bigger publisher. He might say, well, you want it, but we're not sure everybody else wants it. Yeah. Um, so that's certainly something it's, it's good for, for librarians to be doing. Um, but the other thing that came up was this, this idea that um, adults are reading a lot of nonfiction, but we're not really shouting about it. And one of our jobs in schools is modeling. And I'm very aware, it was something I was thinking about preparing for this podcast, that um, like a lot of librarians, I put uh, what I'm currently reading at the bottom of my emails. But I don't always put in the nonfiction that I'm reading because I'm often reading that in a sense for work, even yeah. though it is part of my, my recreational reading. Um, and actually, I feel I ought to share more of the nonfiction that I'm reading, but also that I ought to be... The fiction that I'm reading, I'm often sharing, um, I feel a need to be keeping up with teenage fiction and making sure that I've got stuff that I can recommend. I'm not sure I've really embraced the challenge of keeping up with the, the reading nonfiction um, so that I can go to a child and say, um, um, for example, one that I have read, I go to a child and say, I've read The Thing Explainer. It's the most awesome book I've, I've read recently. I think you love it try this um and i think as librarian well as a librarian personally um i could be more enthusiastic about children's non-fiction and say i love this book try it in a way that i, I do more perhaps with fiction absolutely can i bring can i oh go on then i've got we're just going to bring sabrina in ruth just a second because because <laughs> working in a in a um as a bookseller having been a librarian do you mm -hmm. find that there's more available than you were aware of as a school librarian absolutely there are I mean ironically on Friday the catalogues came through for the children's informative and opinionated books uh to use a non-fiction non-term <laughs> <laughs> and these catalogues were massive and I was flicking through them they were all organized by age groups and that I couldn't believe how many of these texts there were out there that I'd never seen before. I mean, you're totally right. These books are not promoted. I mean, we've got, um, obviously, we have our books of the month um, in Waterstones. Yeah, I'm going to say that. And uh, we <laughs> let do you. a children's <laughs> fiction book as a choice. We don't have a children's non-fiction book, though. We have an adult non-fiction um, which is ironically really popular. That's the one that people want to read. And there's a wide variety of subjects these books are on. But there's no children's nonfiction or informative text being promoted. We've mm. got the um, the um, Children's Fiction Prize currently running at the moment um, to be announced uh, the winner in March. There's no non-fiction on that list. There's, there's no informative book. There's no opinionated book on that. It's all just fiction. And so I think as a bookseller, my job clearly is I need to be saying to kids, look, you can read these books as well. These are just as good, if not sometimes better than all the books over here. And we've mm -hmm. only got in our store one small alcove. But if you go into the bigger bookshops, the children's interesting texts, 
they're they're like pushed into one little area they're very much segregated they're organized by subject there's some gorgeous books in there that are coming out for teenagers for primary school kids you know and the mental health books at the moment they are so many and they start so young and they work all the way up to the teenage years so you've got books that are about social issues so you know there's a baby growing in my mummy's tummy which is a gorgeous picture book about what to expect when your mummy's pregnant you know yeah. all the way up to marcus rashford doing all these mental health books um which so because they know him so the catalog that you saw then is that something that that school librarians could get hold of i don't see why not i mean yeah. again contact the publishers say please send us a catalog yeah. um you know you can do it with peters and that uh, and brown so why not ask the publishers look i'd like to be on the mailing list for a catalogue yeah. um because it recommend, just recommend any in particular well dk obviously do okay. a huge yeah. range but noisy crow as well um we had theirs on friday i was looking through that um yeah. so they were they were the two that came through on friday that i can rattle off off the top of my head yeah. um but they cover such a range just between those two Absolutely. that you could have so much fun um but Thank I think you. the biggest barrier is cost because yeah. these books are not cheap. Expensive. Yeah. Can I bring Ruth back in? You had a question before. Can you remember what it was? <laughs> yeah, there's two things really. I think what's interesting then seems to me is that the voice of fiction readers is louder than as adults than the voice of non-fiction readers. If you think about social media and you think about, I mean, when you look at, sort of I don't know times book of the week they do have both fiction and non-fiction but I think when you know if you think about a book group I'm not sure I know many non-fiction book groups for example yeah and I've people, got one and it's we only read fiction yeah people do generally tend to talk more about you know their reaction to fiction I'm not sure that I you know even people who I know who are great non-fiction readers will say you might be interested in this book. They'll tell me a bit about what it's about, but I don't often have a conversation with them about how it made them feel or, you know, what else it, you know, made them think about or any of those things. So I think there's something there. And then I was thinking, as you were talking about how to get in touch with nonfiction authors and publishers, when I first was in school libraries, we used to have reps round. And reps used to come and tell you what it was that you were missing. In and, and I remember the last rep we had was from a single publishing house. And that's not particularly helpful because I don't have time to see all the publishing houses. I need Browns or whoever it is to send me a rep. And I know that lots of people go to the Peters Warehouse which is like an Aladdin's cave for librarians, as I understand it. I've Heath never got as well. Do you have a warehouse Heath. as well? Yeah, Definitely. yeah, yeah. Um, and so th maybe that's a role that actually we need to bring back in some form. I've been on the SLA What's Coming Up in Publishing seminars, webinars, which of one of which I saw advertised quite recently. Um, but I'm... Uh, it's much more nuanced for me than that. I need the gaps. I need to be able to say, I've got this gap and this gap, and where is the book for this? And I love the idea that there's loads of books out there that I haven't discovered and I don't know about. Um, but I, I've, I'm, I am a bit at a loss as to how to find them, which as a librarian is a slightly embarrassing thing to have to say. <laughs> So is it that we need to be more proactive? Andy, can I bring you back in? Yeah, um, great stuff from yeah from from everyone there. Um, I think there is there is uh, there's nothing wrong with just if you've got a particular gap, like you were saying, Ruth. Just put a question out there on social media. I mean, I'm not a massive social media fan or user, but that's where it is useful. Just put a question. I want a book. Um, you know, age group. Make sure it's you clear that it's non-fiction title on this topic, on this subject, for this person. Um, and by the, another little point, just to go back to something that Jenny said about um, no librarian can possibly have time to read all the books that you would like to read to, to be able to recommend, of course. But this is where non-fiction has a massive advantage. I think it is okay. I'm giving you permission that you don't have to read the whole book. 
Thank you. With fiction, you do um, almost invariably, although you can usually tell after a, a certain amount of time how good it's going to be. But you can one of the beauties of, of children's factual books is that they you can dip in and out. And many children do dip in and out. You can open it, the random page quite often, and quickly pick up the sense of um, how good that book is, what it's about, how it works, how appealing it's going to be, how appropriate it is. Who it's going to appeal to so i think in five ten minutes of looking at a book flicking through the pages reading a few spreads you can quickly get an idea of whether this book is going to work for this child that who you're who you're really concerned about or or want to recommend to yeah yeah i think it's it's really interesting isn't it because it's it's easy to easier or it seems to be easier to be proactive about your fiction um and the focus especially in schools is literacy equals fiction and and we need to almost change the 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 conversation which hopefully this podcast is doing this evening <laughs> um you know yeah and I, th I think the other link that we need to make which is really interesting with Andy's link at the saying about the you know as adults we tend to read more non-fiction than fiction is the fact that we do notice as school librarians that they come into year seven and they quite like and are, and are happy to read fiction by the time they're in year nine that has dropped off significantly and it's not in in my opinion it's not because they've stopped reading it's because they're reading something else and that tends to be reading within the curriculum but i think it's also that they are reading non-fiction and and i think we need to as school librarians encourage and enhance that and and it is about finding what's out there sabrina let me bring you back in I just had a thought, actually. It's really interesting. Um, in our shops, we have what are called shelf talkers, so little recommendations underneath certain books that are face out on the shelves. And they are predominantly in the fiction section, in the children's fiction section, and in the adult informative and opinionated books. We don't tend to have them in the children's informative books. And I'm wondering if that's something really simple when parents come in and they see that these books are not being recommended as entertaining um, or books that people are interested in reading. And uh, I've just had a thought, is that something I can push up to head office and say, excuse me, should we not be doing this in this area as well as everywhere else in the shop? Absolutely. So parents see that booksellers value children's informative and, and opinionated books. Yeah. Well, it's something that we could be doing in school libraries as well, isn't it? Jenny, can I bring you back in? Yeah, I think I just wanted to come back in on that that comment that as children get older, it isn't that they stop reading, it's that they are reading more non-fiction. From my conversations with our students as they're going up, I don't think that's true. Okay. I think re recreationally, I think they are stopping reading if we're not careful. They might be reading in terms of I've been set an assignment and I need to do some reading because it's my homework. Um, but what's happening, even going up into year eight, is there are many different demands on their time, in particular screens, um, which are a huge issue. Um, and, but also, you know, a lot of them will be involved in sports clubs and plays and all sorts of things outside school as they're pushing up towards GCSEs, the homework burden is getting heavier. And actually what they're saying to me is, I don't have time to read. Um, and it's helping them to bring little bits of reading into their day and to say to them, you don't have to have half an hour a day to read. How about let's try 10 minutes a day? How about let's try and just keep that habit running so that when you get a bit older and the pressure comes off a little bit more, you haven't lost the habit completely. Um, because I'm certainly seeing, um, certainly in years 10 and 11, they are just overwhelmed by work. And even, and certainly at my previous school, even some of our really voracious fiction readers um, were overwhelmed by work. Years 10 and 11, the reading would drop off and it would start to climb again in years 12 and 13. 
as they had a bit more flexibility on their time. And what we're working on doing is helping them keep that habit with whatever they want to read, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Through year nine, we're helping them to um, spend some curriculum lesson time reading nonfiction that's supporting them with their subjects to keep the reading going. So that when they get a bit more choice, they can then make choices about whether they're reading fiction or nonfiction. But I certainly for me, I think I'd be fooling myself if I thought they were just reading stuff and not telling me. Um, mm. it's, it's not from the conversations I'm having. That's not the way it's working. No. Okay, thank you. What about Ruth? Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. I'm not sure that I feel sort of compelled for them to continue reading through those really busy times. I, I can see what you're saying, Jenny, but I, I, I know from my students that they come towards the end of year 11 when they see that gap coming at the end of GCSEs and those readers come back to me and they say, we've got ages over the summer, we're going to read and we're going to... And, and they haven't lost any of that. You know, those people who are keen readers, the ones that... And the same at the end of year 13, you know, as they begin, as the pressure changes, and we're all like that in life. You know, I know my reading over the summer holidays, I can knock out several books but, you know, when I think about oh, what have I read since Christmas, well, it's not great. But what worries me more is those kids that we haven't really picked up in seven and eight, who we've sort of dragged through, you know, reading for pleasure, which it hasn't been a pleasure. And they've rolled their eyes even in seven, maybe eight. By the time we get to nine, they've, they'll never pick that habit up. And that's that's what worries me. Um more I, I you know I there's a time in life for everything and sometimes it's not the time to plow through books voraciously and that's fine but but never to have started that habit is more upsetting for me although maybe I should leave those people be as well and accept that we're not all the same no no let's never give up on anybody <laughs> but I think I think it's the middle ground that are, are really important so you may well get um, a group of people who really aren't interested in reading and whatever we do to them it's probably not going to make a difference although actually I would argue if we're validating their reading graphic novels or listening to audiobooks or doing all sorts of different things we can actually yeah. validate what they do want to do but the the ones who worry me are the middle ground the top end will read whatever we do the, yeah. the voracious readers it's the ones in the middle who the lure of screens is just a bit too much and this, that, whatever. Yeah. And without our help and support, they may not come back to reading. And they're, they're the ones I would really target. Yeah. They're the ones I strongly encourage with audiobooks. I love audiobooks. And, you know, and most of them, most of ours commute a reasonable distance by the time they're at secondary school. You know, that seems to me to be a gift. I can't, you know I can't think that's what I do with my commute and that's what I encourage them with um I think and and those beautifully I mean the non-fiction audiobook mm -hmm. it's my way my favorite way to consume non-fiction is audiobook um yeah fantastic okay but well I've just noticed I've noticed the time and already it's amazing how it can all just you know conversations like this are amazing and it's so good that you've all given me so much time today fantastic can we just round it off um if you had one last thing that you'd want to say before you before you left this evening um what would it be I've I've sort of thrown that on you and I'm going to come to Andy first have you got a have you got a message for everybody that you can finish us off with um, just, just uh, rip. First of all, have a non-fiction author come in. See, I'm calling it non-fiction. <laughs> have an <author>, non-fiction <laughs> author. You, you pull me down. Have a non-fiction <laughs> author come into school because that you, these books need an advocate, and the best advocate is is the person who's who's got the enthusiasm to create the thing in the first place. So, yeah, they are out there, and and um, they will enthuse and get children reading. Perfect. Thank you, Andy. And what about you, Jenny? Have you got one final thing to say? I think it is that thing of um, making sure that we are validating reading in all sorts of types. And then we're not making value judgments for children of this reading is good and will make you better. And this reading you can do when you've got a bit of time, but it's not important. 
um, and that we are not making artificial distinctions and weaving all of these different books into our displays, into our, what we're reading, into our um, reading challenges and all sorts of things, because as adults, we have a really rich fiction, non-fiction, everything in between reading life. And that's what we want to introduce our children to. Fantastic. What a lovely way to finish. So thank you very much for your time this evening, um, especially Jenny and Andy. Um, anything that we've specifically mentioned tonight, I don't know whether we have particularly, but anything that I can think of, I will put in the show notes below. Um, as always, um, if you'd like to comment on anything you've heard today, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Don't forget to, to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on future discussions. Thank you very much for listening.